kind of finishing up on 6 and 7, moving into 8 and 9 this morning, covering a lot of ground and, uh, and some stories that, stories that are, that are pretty, in, pretty intense, to be honest with you. We're, uh, we're looking back at the story of Gideon and, uh, and the, 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 the one who comes after Gideon, his son Abimelech. And let me just tell you, man, we've had a sword get stuck in a fat man's belly. We've had a, uh, we've had a, 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 a warrior killed by a, a woman with a tent peg. And uh, we've had some, some pretty, pretty rough stuff. We had 300 men last week massacre an army of over 100,000. And today's story might be darker and bloodier than all of them. Uh, welcome to the book of Judges. This is where we go. We just go down and down and down. And that today is going to continue in that, uh, that kind of trajectory. But if you hang with me to the end, I think we're going to get an amazing picture of why these stories are in the Bible at all and why these things are uh, there. And I can almost bet my house that you're not going to see it coming, uh, even though you'll know the Bible verses that get tied to this story very, very well. Last week I began by talking about Independence Day and uh, about how as a, as a nation our independence is one of the things that kind of collectively and fundamentally defines us as Americans and how that, that works well for a country that doesn't always work well as a spiritual identity uh, though. Uh, but, but because of that independence or maybe it's just because of who we are as Americans, we get a little egocentric, a little ethnocentric, we, we, we tend to not understand how certain things work out in the world and how the rest of the world does things. If you've ever been on a mission trip, you understand what I'm uh, talking about. Uh, I can almost bet that if you've been on a, on a mission trip anywhere in the world, you have been amazed and terrified by the way that people drive. You have sat in a car and you've realized, wow, maybe our roads aren't as bad as I thought they were here. You, you've heard horns used liberally uh, not just to say, hey, you, get out of my way. I remember whenever we went to, uh, when I went to Nicaragua, the, the amount that the horn got used in Nicaragua blew my mind. It was used to say, you go. It was used to say, I'm coming. It was used to say, I'm over here. It was used to say, you need to go over there. It was used to do just about anything. It was used to say, hey, I'm coming around the corner. It was used to say, hey, I'm coming down the wrong way of one-way street. Honk, honk, here I come. I honked. That's all I have to do. Uh, it was used cresting over a, a, a mountain, really, but over the top of it on a road that was about as narrow as this table, and you're going over the, the crest. You have no idea what's on the other side. So what's the solution? You just honk your horn, and then you're good. Uh, that, that was Nicaragua, everywhere you went. And also what I noticed is that uh, we wait a long time to make sure the road is clear before we make a left-hand turn across traffic. They don't do that in most countries. Most countries, it's honk the horn, I'm coming, you're going to stop, which is fine if you're on the driver's side, but if you're, if you're not, if, you are, uh, uh, if you're the passenger, which I was for most of this trip, you're, you're frontline defense there, and uh, you just don't understand that people drive differently in other countries. If they're even on the, the correct side of the road, they probably won't, won't be. Everything else is a little bit uh, a little bit crazy. There's other, there's other things that we don't other, understand about the way the rest of the world works, too. 
Uh, I grew up playing baseball. I understood baseball and baseball lingo. I did not grow up playing soccer, but uh, my daughter decided that soccer would be, uh, be her sport that she would play a lot. And so what I had to learn is that there's a whole vocabulary that comes with soccer that's totally different than, than, than the rest of like everything I've ever known. For one, it's not soccer, it's football. Uh, so you, you, you really aren't supposed to say that, but there's, there's more things too. You play soccer field on a, or soccer, soccer, you play soccer on a what? A pitch, not a field. It's the same thing, it's a field, but you can't call it a field, you have to call it a, a pitch. The things that you wear on your, on your feet, they're cleats, no they're not, they're boots. Uh, you can't call them cleats, they're, they're, they're boots. The thing that you wear whenever you're playing, it is your what? Not your uniform. It's your kit. Brooke, you're doing great. You played softball, so this is good. You, you understand completely how this, how this works. And, and if the score is, is nothing to nothing, it's not zero to zero. It's nil-nil. Why this is this way, I don't know. But you're not allowed to say the things that Americans say. You have to say totally different things. You have to talk about it completely different. Because as Americans, we don't understand that. We don't get that. But it's part of the vocabulary and how things uh, work with, with soccer. Another thing that we don't understand, and honestly, I have to admit, this is a little bit of an egocentric American view, but we don't get the metric system either. Um, we don't get the metric system, but I like this, this meme here. There's two kinds of countries, those who use the metric system and those who landed on the moon. Uh, we are the ones who landed on the moon, but to be honest, the metric system is way easier to understand. Uh, it makes a lot more sense, but it also means I have to buy two sets of tools for everything that I want to do, uh, which is not fair. Um, if we could just pick one, it would save me money and all of that. But as Americans, there's certain things that we don't that we just don't get. They're just different if you are somewhere else in the world. And one of the things that we don't really understand is monarchies. We don't understand how monarchies work. Emily and I have been watching the show uh, the, the Crown, and we're like in season four, and I still don't understand the purpose of monarchies. I don't understand. Like I was hoping this would explain why England has a, a king and a queen, and it doesn't fully explain that to me. I don't really understand the uh, the, the, the purpose, and as, a, as an American, as, a, as, a, as a, uh, a good patriotic American, I have a healthy distaste for monarchies and for dictators. Uh, and I don't, I don't like, nor do I understand, how one country can be ruled by one man or one woman. And it's because, as Americans, we don't understand a monarchy system. We don't understand how kings and queens work. We don't understand how one person can have almost unlimited sovereignty over a people and over a nation. It's because we don't understand this that the book of Judges can be completely lost on us. The book of Judges can be completely lost on us because the gist of the book of Judges, the, the, the whole point of the, the book of Judges, is how Israel really kind of does need a king but they need a king on God's terms in the way that God establishes, and that's not really the way that the people of, uh, of Israel want to do that. 
from an outsider's perspective, it made sense why they needed a king. They needed a king to unify their different tribes. They had the 12 tribes of Israel. They were all kind of disjointed. They weren't this unified, like, here we are as a nation. They were really a lot like us as 13 colonies who were really kind of more married to the colonies more than they were to the country. It wasn't until uh, the Revolutionary War and really even kind of the back end of the Revolutionary War that we moved from being 13 colonies to being uh, the United States of America. This is kind of where Israel is at this point. They're their, they are their different, uh, uh, their, their different tribes more so than they are Israel as a whole, as we kind of know them and as we kind of understand. So they needed a king that could come up and could unify them and could bring them all together. And they needed a king that could go out and fight wars against all kings that kept coming in and trying to take them as slaves and take them as rulers. It makes total sense. The people desperately wanted a king. They wanted a king because a king was meant to stop the oppressors and to unify the people. And God had told them that if they remained faithful to him, then that would happen. They would be unified and, they would, and that, that God would go before them and fight their battles. But the people decided they'd rather not be faithful. They'd rather just trust in one man to do the job for them. It may not make sense to us as Americans why you would want a king like that, but it made total sense to the Israelites during that time. And that is what our stories are about this morning. Now I'm going to have to summarize a bit here as we go through this. I'm going to have to kind of move through this and summarize for the sake of time. So hopefully you have your Bibles. You're not just going to be dependent on what, what pops up on the screen or you can at least bring it up on your phone because we're going to summarize chunks. We'll have quite a bit that'll be up there too, but we're also going to summarize uh, some chunks as we go uh, as we go through this, because as, as we, if we were to just read it, it's not super clear what's happening. And for the sake of time, I'll just, I'll just do the summary. So we're in chapter 8, and we'll pick up where we left off last week. If you'll remember, last week we saw where Gideon had to send like 99% of his army home and fight a massive army of over 100,000 men with just 300. And he had to send all these men home, not because of anything that they did, but simply because God said, hey, I want you to get your army down to 300 men. And God does this so that Gideon and Israel will understand that God has done this, that God has the one, been the one to deliver them from battle. He, the whole point is to whittle the army down to a point that only God could get the glory because it's such an absurd thing that they would win the battle. And so uh, they, they do this, and then Gideon gets up a plan, God delivers them, he does all of these things, God comes through, and they win the battle that they went to fight. And we pick up today on the heels of that battle, and Gideon has got the Midianites, and, and more specifically, the Midianite kings on the run, right? So they've won the battle, the kings have escaped out of the battle, and they are, they are running. But you've got to get the kings, because if you don't get the kings, the kings can't, uh, can't submit, and they can't uh, kind of bow their knee to uh, the, the warriors from Israel. You've got to get the kings if you want to take the full victory. And so they do this, and this is where we pick up. The 300 men are chasing after these kings, and this is where we pick up. And there's two, really kind of three, but, really, but two kind of stories together that... that are telling interactions about where Gideon is in this moment. So he's, the, 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 the first thing that happens, the first interaction, is the commander of the armies from Ephraim. 
So this is one of the tribes of Israel. Remember, they're functioning more as tribes, not as one unified country. What the, the, the commander from Ephraim comes up to Gideon and says, Hey, Gideon, I saw that you won this battle. Why didn't you invite us to fight? We would have liked to come and, and, and fought with you. Why didn't you have us come? And essentially what has happened is the, the, the commander from Ephraim, the people of Ephraim have, have recognized that, that Gideon has won this battle and now Gideon is getting all the praise. And Gideon's people and his men from Manasseh, the tribe he comes from, are getting all this praise. And here's the problem. Ephraim was large, it was powerful, it was wealthy, it was the, the or one of the most powerful tribes of Israel. Manasseh was really one of the weakest and one of the poorest. And so the idea that one of the weakest and and poorest tribes would then get the glory for defeating these kings and defeating this army, that didn't set well at all for Ephraim. did not set well at all for for their their kind of warrior king leader that was over them. And so he said, hey, why didn't you invite us? He's calling Gideon out saying, you just wanted, you were a glory hound. You just wanted this for yourself. Well, Gideon's response is not, I just did what God told me. God won the battle. Let me defer. Gideon's response to to Ephraim is, oh, listen, I never would have asked you guys because I'm little old me and you're big old you. You probably wouldn't have listened to me anyway because why should you listen to me? You guys are so great and we're so not. So I'm sorry, guys. I didn't mean to overlook you. I really was just really just felt like, uh, like, like you, were, you were so big and so strong, I couldn't even begin to ask you. That's basically his response. It's a very politically correct, very diplomatic response to Ephraim. And so he says, listen, you guys are awesome. I'm not, I wouldn't even dare to ask you. That would be so presumptuous of me. Well, the, 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 the leaders of Ephraim are kind of flattered by that. And they're like, all right, we'll let you get away with that. That's fine. Next time, come get us and talk to us, so it, he, it, it's really a, a well played situation for Gideon, and he kind of gets gets out of this awkward place. But then, if you look in verse four, we have a picture where the, the the picture of Gideon begins to shift. So far, what we've seen about Gideon is mostly flattering. There's a couple of times where it's like, was he being was, was he putting God to the test, and was he being you know unfaithful and you know, there's some questions there, but for the most part, we can look at Gideon and say, hey, Gideon's a hero. He led 300 men into battle. He, he won this battle. He trusted God. He's done the great things. But verse 4, things begin to shift. They begin to change drastically. As he pursues the kings of Midian, he stops in two, uh, 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 two Israelite cities, Succoth and Peniel. And he goes to these cities and he says, Guys, give us some bread. Give us some water. We're chasing after these kings on your behalf. Can you just help us out and give us a little bit of food so that we can be on our way? And, and, and their response is they basically mock him. And they're like, oh, right, you're chasing after these kings. Tell you what, you show us the kings and we'll believe you and we'll give you some bread at that point. And so Gideon responds and he curses them, uh, both of these cities, and he essentially says, you mock me for my lack of power, you mock me from where I come from, you mock me, but I promise you I'll be back and I'll have these kings in tow and I will show you and all your men just how powerful I am. So Gideon kind of takes this as a challenge to his manhood, like, like seriously, this is what you're going to say about me after what I've done? I'll be back and I'll show you just how great I am. 
So he goes on from these cities and he runs down these two kings and he captures these two uh, Midianite kings. And when he does, the first thing that he does is he turns around and he brings these kings back to the two cities that refused to help, to, to help him. He shows them the, captu- the captured kings and he says, now you're going to listen to me, guys. I came here and asked for help and you mocked me. And here I stand with these kings that have enslaved you for years. You're going to listen to me, and you're going to listen to what I've got to say. And he gathers all the town leaders uh, in, in, in the middle of town, and he and his army essentially violently beat the town leaders in the middle of town. Just waylay them. The other one, he drives all the, the, the townsmen, he goes to, this is in Peniel, he goes to the, the, the town, he calls out the, the, the uh, leaders of the town, he says, you, you, and you, he had gotten the names of them, he says, you guys come with me, he drives them back into a tower that's kind of the, like the, the, the backup retreat tower if the city's walls have come down, he, he drives the men into the tower, and then he and his army proceed to pull the tower down on top of them, killing them all. He kills the town leaders, and he says, or not, I'm sorry, not just the, town's lead, the town leaders, the, he beat the town leaders. In this one, he puts all the men of the city in the town, and he pulls the tower down on top of all the men of the city, kills them all. I told you this gets dark. It's only going to get worse. It's rough stuff, man, and these were his own countrymen. These were not warriors against him. All they had done is mock him and refuse to help him. But he showed them. Next, we get these two kings. These two kings that Gideon had had spent so much time pursuing uh, because these men had put a mission, uh, or had put, had put Gideon on a, 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 a mission. And what we learn is that this was not simply a matter of finishing the battle. This is not simply a matter of, of Gideon finishing the due dil- doing his due diligence in the battle that God had called them to. What we learn is that Gideon had a personal vendetta against them. He wasn't out to honor God. He was out to settle a score, and he was out for revenge. At some point, these men had come across Gideon's brothers and killed all of Gideon's brothers, killed them all. So when Gideon learned of this, and then the opportunity presented itself, Gideon knew that he was going to chase them down. And when he chased them down, he was going to kill them. He was coming after them for what they had done. And this is what he does. He gathers them together, and initially, he, he, he wants to add insult to injury here. And so what he says is, uh, and now that I've got you guys, I'm going to take out my revenge for what you've done to my brothers. I'm going to take out my re- revenge for what it is that you've done. And he looks to his young son, and Gideon tells his young son, kill him. You do it. And the whole reason that he's doing that is because what we find is that he's, not, he's a very young son. And so he's trying to add insult that these two powerful kings are about to get beheaded by a little boy. But the, the, the Gideon's son is so young that he, he, get, he gets nervous, he starts shaking, and he can't complete the task that Gideon has called him to. So Gideon says, fine, I'll do it. And he does it. And he kills both of the kings. He takes their kingly robes. He takes their jewelry for himself. And this brutal scene reveals that Gideon isn't quite the hero that we thought he, thought he was. 
He's not quite the guy that we look up to and we say, that's the guy that I want, that's the guy that I want to be like. He is very much a shattered and broken Savior. Yes, God raises him up as a judge to save his people, but he is a broken Savior, shattered to his core, out for out for, for, for revenge, out for uh, uh, personal vengeance, out to, to, to kind of a bloodlust, out to, to, to kind of prove his manliness and his, his, his macho-ness. He's, he's got all of these things, and he says, I'm going to be that kind of guy. And that's the guy that he is. And that's where we pick up in verse 22. Judges 8, 22. It says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, so what, what's the response to this warrior king that is so violent and strong? The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor my son, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So they see this powerful, violent man, and they say, that's the kind of guy that we need in charge. That's the kind of guy that we need fighting on our behalf. We need a strong man. We need a man that's in power, that's in the, the, the top seat of government, that'll go out and fight our battles for us. We need that kind of guy. doesn't matter if he's not a good guy. We need that kind of guy to go out and do it. We'll be the good guys. He can be the bad guys. should sound a little familiar to our current state of where we are in politics. This is the guy that we need to go forward. This is the guy that we need to fight on our behalf. And Gideon, good old Gideon comes through. Good job. He had, maybe he had this, this, this moment of rage, this, this moment of, you know, he, the, the vengeance you can kind of understand, so maybe you excuse it a little bit. Maybe he is the good hero that we need after all because he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be your king. I've learned the lesson that God tried to teach us. You guys have not learned the lesson that I, Gideon, was not the one that was powerful, but I have learned that lesson. This was all about how powerful God was. God should be getting the glory. I won't do it. The Lord will be your king. So Gideon looks great in, being re in, in, in refusing to be called king until we keep reading. If the story had ended right there, then we might, we might forgive Gideon for a moment of weakness and, and rage and anger and, and, you know, sorry for what I did when I was hungry type of deal. But this, was not, this is not what happens. Instead, this is what happens. Judges 8, 24. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. So basically, I got an idea. I, I got an idea. This should make all parties happy. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in, threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings uh, that he requested was, seven, was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments one, worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of, of it and put it in his city of Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And, they, and the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. 
Oh, Gideon, you're so close. You're so close. And then we have this strangely similar, strangely familiar pattern in the history of Israel where they throw all their gold together, they throw it in a furnace, and out comes a statue. That should sound pretty familiar to you. Basically, what Gideon said was this, no, I don't want to be your king, but since you love me so much, here's what I'll do. Here's the, here's the deal I'll make with you. I'll build a giant statue of me made of gold, and you can worship it here in my hometown, far away from the place where you should actually be worshiping the one who is actually responsible for the victory, Yahweh. I'll make a deal with you. I won't be your king, but you can worship me like I am. That's, that's essentially Gideon's deal that he decides to make with the people of Israel. He says he won't be a king, but he proceeds to act just like one. He honors God with his lips, but his life screams and shouts a truth that is far different than the appearances. So we see a slight break in our pattern. They don't even wait for the judge to die before they start pursuing other gods. That's been the pattern so far. You raise up a judge, the judge delivers them, the people repent, they are faithful, and then years later they start chasing after the other gods again. They don't even wait at this point. Before Gideon is dead, they already begin worshiping something else. And then at the end of chapter 8, we see Gideon's death, and almost immediately all of Israel has gone back to chasing other gods. And this is when something odd happens. Again, we've seen the same kind of pattern every time. The, the, the pattern breaks here. God doesn't raise up a judge after Gideon's death and they are chasing after other gods. He doesn't raise up another savior. Instead, someone else steps into the scene and kind of assumes that job himself. He says, I'm not going to wait on God to raise up a savior. I'm the son of Gideon. I'm going to step in and I'm going to be the deliverer. I'm going to be the savior. This is Judges chapter 9, verse 1. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeru, Jeru, Jerubal. Now the thing is, there's a shift right here where it says this Jerubal. It's still Gideon. They just changed his name in there. So I'm just going to keep calling him Gideon because it's easier to say. Uh, now Abimelech, the son of Gideon, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you that all 70 sons of Gideon, yes, 70 sons of Gideon, rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. So a couple of interesting notes here. Gideon has all kinds of wives. He's got all kinds of wives, and he's got all these kids to these wives. Abimelech, however, uh, is born not to a wife, but to a concubine. And this one child born to this concubine comes forward and starts scheming, starts realizing that, that out of the 70 guys, since, since he wasn't born to one of Gideon's wives, out of these 70 brothers that he's got, uh, he's, like, he's like number 71 in the, in the line of succession here. He realizes he's never going to be a king. He's never going to be much of anything because he's so far down the totem pole. And so he starts scheming. And he sees his dad as the king. And if dad is dead, then a son needs to take the throne. And he is determined 
that it will be him. Never mind the fact that there is no actual king at this point. This is the way Abimelech sees it. And this is the way Abimelech is determined to make everyone else see it. Abimelech's name even points to the scheming. I think this is interesting. Gideon says, no, I'm not going to be your king. But then he has a son and names him Abimelech, which means my dad is king. That's what, that's what, that's what it means. Now, it's possible that the, the mom may have given that name as something of a, uh, of a deference to her son to kind of, kind of give him more of a standing within the family or or within Israel. So maybe Gideon didn't have much to do with Abimelech. Maybe Gideon didn't actually name him. But either way, it's a pretty ironic uh, name. His name is my dad is king. uh, And and, and Abimelech says, well, my dad is king. Then that means that the king is dead. Long live the king. Who's next? Who is next? And that's where we get Judges 9 verse 3. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. So there's gossip and scheming going on behind the, 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 the palace doors, right? And their hearts are inclined to follow Abimelech. So he, he starts turning people. This guy's shrewd, and he's got some shrewd ants with him too that are working on his behalf. And they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of baal Bareth, in which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows. How'd you like for that to be who you get known as in the Bible? Worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And they went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Gideon, 70 men on one stone. Did you catch that? He killed them all. If, if, if all 70 are ahead of him in the line of succession, he fixed that problem. He's next. Because they're all dead at this point. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubel of Gideon, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went, and they made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar of Shechem. Man, it's dark stuff. It is, it is terrible stuff to read through this. 70 brothers murdered by Abimelech just to make sure they didn't try to make claim on a throne that didn't even exist yet. Doesn't even exist until you get to verse 6 where basically he, he, he speaks it into existence. Like they make it happen, right? And Abimelech created the idea of the throne. He created the process for how you ascend to the throne. And then he slaughtered all his brothers to make sure that they did not get in the way. And unlike his dad, there is no deferring and pretending that he is not king. Abimelech saw an opportunity and he took it. Violently, wickedly, tragically, but he took it. Jotham, the one brother that escaped, he goes to the town of Shechem. He tries to tell them what a horrible mistake that they have made, that they don't realize how they've been duped by this guy, uh, Abimelech, and how they shouldn't be doing this, and how the, 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 he, he, he kind of tells them this big parable. And he says, these previous judges that served us, you know, these, these guys that came before us, they were so good. Their names literally are like different types of trees. He says, they were like trees. They gave you shade that you sat in. They were such a blessing. They gave you fruit. They were wonderful, wonderful judges. Abimelech is like a bramble. He's like a thorn bush. Don't trust him. Don't put your hope in him. You're not going to get any shade out of a, out of a thorn bush. 
You'll get nothing but trouble from this one. The parable turns out to be a prophecy, and Abimelech's rule is a train wreck from day one. The people who made him king almost immediately begin to kind of like undermine their decision. They never trust him. They're constantly battling with him until essentially a, a civil war breaks out within the people of Shechem and within the tribe. And the, the result of the, the first battle within the people of Shechem is that Abimelech drives over a thousand men and women into the city's tower. I wonder where he learned this from. And he, 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 he kind of backs them up into this refuge tower and then once he gets there he, he, he sets the he sets wood around the base of the the tower sets it on fire burns it down killing all a thousand men and women in the tower that's the first battle within this kind of civil war it's terrible fast forward to the next city that had risen against Abimelech and it's a familiar scene until it's not judges 9 verse 51 but there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. So same pattern of what just happened uh, before, what had happened in the other city. He wants to drive them into the tower, set it on fire, kill them all in one swoop. And then you get verse 53. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. And then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. They quit fighting. They were only fighting because they had to. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return to their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubel. So that's how the story ends. You got two dead men, Gideon and Abimelech, a father and a son. One who had said he was no king, but acted like one. One who was no king, but violently and wickedly made himself one. What do we do with all of this darkness and bloodshed? What do we do with all of this? We, we are in, um, in America. We're not trying to name a king. I mean, politics is a mess, but we're not quite here at this level, right? And so what do, we, what do we do with this? Let me, let me, just, let me just assume what, that, that we're not at this level with our politics anyway. What do we do with this? Where do we go from here? Why do we care about these dark, terrible, horrible stories? These stories are not in here the, like some HBO TV series to entertain us with the gore and with the darkness and with the political intrigue. They're in here to teach us a lesson about something, about two things, really, about the nature of us, the nature of humans, and about the nature of God. There's a lot we can say about Gideon and his downfall, about his need to prove himself to others, his drive for vengeance, his lack of trust in God, even when he had explicitly been given all these pictures of why he should trust in God. 
We can talk about Gideon's success and how success is no preventer of keeping our hearts true to God. We pray that way, though. You know, that's, that's how we pray. God, if you'll just grant this request, if you'll give me this one thing, if you'll make me successful in this one area, then I promise you there'll be no stumbling blocks into my, in my way to how much I will love you. That is how we pray, even if we don't explicitly say that. God, just give me this thing, and when I get this thing, then I'll be good. All will be well, and you and I, we will be buds. We'll be friends. Just answer this prayer for me. We pray for the good gifts, and, 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 and the, the ironic thing is that oftentimes the good gifts that we receive don't make us more faithful but less. We pray for good gifts, and the more we receive the less we need God in our lives. The less we need Him, the less faithful we are. Beware of the idol and the lies that success tells you. Like Gideon, flattery and glory are an intoxicating mixture. And once you drink it, it's going to be hard for you to sit that drink down. We can talk about Gideon's overseeing of God's people while they, while they ran after other gods and, and they didn't even wait for him to die and how quickly the, and how fickle the human heart is. And, and, and we, we can talk about the, the, the way that the, the, the very leader they trusted in Gideon even encouraged this, how he betrayed them in that. If we want to talk about Abimelech, the sins are obvious. The craven drive for power and recognition. The willingness to stop at nothing to make sure that he was the one that was honored. Is that you? I mean, I'm not saying you're like pushing a bunch of people in a tower and then setting it on fire. But do you have that same desire within you to, to, to receive that glory, to be honored and recognized for how you great you are and what you've done? Maybe not on that level of Abimelech, but it's probably in there somewhere. All those things are things that we can and should ponder in our hearts as we consider the lessons of Gideon and Abimelech. But I think the biggest lesson to learn is the one that goes unsaid, at least in the moment. The writer of Judges and the Holy Spirit gave us these stories of these two men, not to tell us how bad they are, although they do do that, or to talk about how bad one of Israel's heroes is, but it does that well. It kind of reframes that. The writer of Judges wants us to see how shattered and broken these men are. How these men that Israel begged to be king and then made king were actually terrible people who did terrible things. The bloodshed, the darkness, the wickedness, they are not on display for our entertainment, but instead for our instruction. The wickedness and the failures of these men are put on display to show us the foolishness of putting our hopes in saviors that were never meant to be our ultimate saviors at all. It teaches us the folly of trusting our own judgment, our own desires, and how we should be listening to what God has laid out before us. It teaches us to, to, to stop trusting in foolish things that the world values and instead trust in a God who values very different things things. And in fact, the writer of Judges is saying, okay, you want a king? Here's what you're going to get with a king. The best one is terrible, and his son is even worse. Here's your king. Enjoy. It's this darkness and this massive failure that provides for us exactly what the Holy Spirit picks up on and uses, not to crush Israel or us, 
but to give them and us hope. Here's what I want you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah. It'll come up here, but it, I think it'll be good for you to see it. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 9, a verse that you know very well. Isaiah chapter 9. I want you to see how Isaiah uses this story to set the stage for the one who would be our king and the one who would be our hope. Not one who takes the throne by force or pursues his enemies in vengeance, but one that rules justly and rightly and pursues his enemies in grace. Now, this passage Isaiah writes is beautiful. It's got a ton of imagery in it. It refers to all kinds of different things within Israel's history. But this period, Judges 6 through 9, is part of the backdrop of these verses. I'm not going to attempt to explain to you all that's in here, but I want you to see how this ties back to Gideon and to his son. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So so, so the backdrop of Judges 6 through 9 is where Isaiah goes and he's going there to paint a picture for us. It is the backdrop, the day of Midian, the time when things were terribly dark. A land that had seen a deep darkness, but it had experienced the freeing power of God, and he had freed them from these cruel Midianite kings. That's the backdrop for the rest of the prophecy. Look in verse 6. In that backdrop of pure darkness and the, 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 the Midian kings being broken, we get this. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is not Christmas, but it is. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of the host will do this. According to Isaiah 9, 2 through 7, what Gideon did to Midian is the backdrop against which God will send the Messiah, one who sh- who, one on whose shoulders the government will rest, who will rule forever and ever. The prophet declares that as Gideon broke Midian, so also the king will break every oppressor. But unlike Gideon, And Abimelech and every other failed deliverer, judge, king, and would-be savior from that day until now. Unlike them, this man would not be vile, would not be wicked, would not be self-seeking in in everything that he does, would not not be one who comes and, and... and, and, and demands in the moment everything that is rightfully his, and said this one would be a wonderful counselor, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. 
it would be the mighty God himself. And when this king takes his throne, he will establish it from this time until forevermore. It's this, it's beautiful poetry that Isaiah writes with. But part of the beauty in it is the hope that it gives. The saviors of this world cannot do what only Jesus can do. He is a king, but not like all the other little kings that you and I set up and all the other little kings that we, that we set up to kind of dictate our lives. Not like all the other kings that Israel has put forward. Not like all the other kings that the culture has put forward. Not like all the other kings that the, the world has put forward. Not like all the little kings that we put forward. Not like the king we ourselves try to be over our own lives. No, this king, this king, this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this king is not shattered. He is not broken and he will not fail. I said earlier that we don't understand kings and I suppose that that is true, at least not from a a political, modern day political standpoint, but we sure know what it means for us to rule over our own little kingdoms. And we sure know what it means to appoint ourselves as that king. We know what that's like to to want everyone to worship at our feet and to move around us as though we are the center. The book of Judges warns us that our rule over our own little kingdoms will be as bad or worse than Gideon's rule over Israel and Abimelech's rule over Israel because we, like them, cannot deliver ourselves and we, like them, are just as shattered. But unto us a son is given, and that's the gospel. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, this is what we celebrate. Not our brokenness and the darkness and the wickedness of our own hearts or that around us, but instead that in the midst of that darkness, a bright light has shone. And that unto us, a son is given. Unto us, a king is given. Born in a manger, not given the due and the respect and the glory that he deserves, but a king that would be righteous and whole and perfect. And Father, as those who are who are apart from you in bondage to sin, we celebrate that he breaks the rod of the oppressor just as Midian was broken. And just as Gideon was instructed, we we recognize that it is not us, it is not our scheming, it is not our plan that has done this. But the glory is yours. 